Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 157 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So welcome back to the show, Matthew. How's it going, Mark? How was your break from uh, podcasting? Uh, Busy. (laughs) (laughs) We were talking about just before we sat down. I'm not used to seeing you sitting across from me. It's usually Nicholas these days. I'm looking forward to this one. I got some good content. I might have a rant or two for you. Okay. Okay. I'm sure everybody misses that. So uh, before we begin, as always, just want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on July 6th. And this data is from Y charts. S&P 500 index up 1.22% for July and down 19.61% for the year. The Dow up 0.63% for July and down 14.78% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index up 2.66% for the month and down 27.63% for the year. The Small Cap Russell 2000 Index up 1.95% for the month and down 22.45% for the year. Vanguard International ETF X United States down 1.88% for the month and down 20.34% for the year. Which is interesting because I think a lot of people coming into 2022, there was like a rah-rah rally that international was going to outperform. How many times have you heard that? I've heard that a lot of times over the past decade, to be honest. Yeah. So um, that's not come to fruition just yet. Not What's saying the saying? A broken clock's right two times a day, man. That's right. Eventually they're going to get it. So eventually, eventually they're outperforming, but uh, not right now. Uh, really interesting on the yield front, Matt. The three-month T-bill uh, yielding 1.9%, so bumping up against 2% uh, annualized yield. The two-year Treasury yield currently sitting at 2.82%, and the 10-year Treasury yield at also 2.82%. So we had a brief inversion, I believe, yesterday and Tuesday on uh, the two and 10 years again, signaling that, or at least the the bond market is signaling that there's more risk in the near term than there is 10 years down the road. That's right. And usually it's associated as a uh, preview that a formal recession is somewhere in the near term. Right. Usually. Yeah. Now, the thing that I like to kind of, when I see this for our viewers and listeners, I want them to visualize a yield curve that is flattening. Right. That's what I want them to visualize with this, because a couple of weeks ago, you had the 10 year. I was almost at three and a half percent. And in a couple of weeks, you go from three and a half percent down to two point eight two. I can't emphasize enough how major of a move that is in two weeks. That right. is massive. Right. That's like the stock market in two weeks going up or down 10 percent. 
And it's just a massive move. Yeah, and it's not it's not indicative of a normal environment, right? Because the longer you go out on the duration for these bonds, you should be compensated. You should be compensated because there's more risk, right? There should be more stuff that's able to happen within a 10-year period than a 2-year period. Exactly. But, you know, this is quote unquote one of the recessionary indicators that you know, once the two-year treasuries are yielding more than the 10-year, that, again, there's a, a recession on the horizon, which we've been talking about. And looking back at it, we might even be in one right now. We'll see when we get a GDP print later this month. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me, you know, if you fast forward, say, 18 months, the Fed's probably going to go too far in the hiking of interest rates to control inflation to where the second half of next year in 23 they could be in a lowering cycle again. Mm -hmm. And that's actually a base case in my mind. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, moving on to big headlines, current events from the week. Um, the Biden administration is considering dropping the tariffs that have been in place since the levies were enacted in 2018 by the Trump administration. So this could ease consumer prices even further in the U.S. as there be access to cheaper input costs, right, for products mm -hmm. uh, here. So, again, wouldn't surprise me to see the tariffs get dropped shortly before the midterm elections mm -hmm. uh, to try to gain some political um, steam, I guess, for for the current administration. But I'm kind of surprised that they didn't do this earlier, because I think that's one uh, easy win for the administration would be just to to drop those tariffs. Right. Yeah, it's been in their back pocket for some time. And what you know, the timing makes you kind of wonder, but I'm sure it is tied to the midterms. Yeah. Yeah. Number two is uh, oh, here we go with the probabilities. You, go, uh, you love these. The odds Jenny, of, he's gonna go nuts on this of a U.S. recession in the next year are now roughly one in three after consumer sentiment hit a record low and interest rates surged, according to the latest forecast from Bloomberg Economics. So, even had the, even had a good uh, uh, word there for you, surged. Surged. It's got all the. We have probabilities, Jenna. We have words that are just enticing mark this is the does, perfect I hate this stuff so now so they're saying there's a 38 percent chance of a recession within 12 months so and the probability model incorporates a variety of factors with housing permits consumer survey data uh treasury yields so according to bloomberg there's a 38 percent probability of recession in the next 12 months so i'd say it's higher than that yeah i probably would too so take that for for what it's worth uh, moving on to tweets, articles, and research from the week. Uh, first thing I had was a research piece from Top Down Charts with first half 2022 returns for major index classes. Uh, and Jenna will throw this up on the YouTube stream right now so you can see what I'm talking about. But it just outlines the first half performance for 2022 of major asset classes. So, you know, the thing that Callum points out here is virtually nothing works outside of cash and commodities. This is a very important chart that if we have listeners that are listening to the audio portion of this podcast, they got to look at the show notes on this one mm -hmm. because it what you're about to verbalize doesn't do it just justice unless you visually see this chart. Right. And I think the big thing coming out of here is tips, treasury inflated protected securities by the means of this chart, we're down close to 15%. How's that work? And those are supposed How's to work, work during periods of inflation, right? So they're really... I'm chuckling because everything's correlated right. the same way. Yeah. I don't care if it was th you thought it was conservative or you thought it was aggressive. 
everything got nailed. Right. And I'm going to touch on that here in a little bit. But yeah, there there was really no no place to hide unless you were in cash. Right. Yeah. And someone could sit there and say, well, look at commodities. Commodities are getting slammed right now as we speak. Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of commodities have come in, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20 percent um, just in the month of June alone. Alone. Right now. So alone wheat's down almost 30 since its peak. Corn's down like 20. Yeah, oils down, uh, aluminum, iron ore, uh, a lot of these input products uh, yep. in the manufacturing process have come down significantly. And so people are concerned about an economic slowdown. Right. So the Fed can control demand side inflation, but they really can't control supply side. Right. So things like energy. Right. They can't. You know, we had our Zoom market webinar last night and I was talking about how the Fed cannot drill more oil and the Fed cannot and the Russia-Ukraine war. Yes. Right. So, so they they can't solve that problem. But, um, yeah, yeah. Domestically and internationally, stocks and bonds got whacked. You know, all cap levels, large, mid, small. Um, yeah. So. I mean, the way I categorize it is anything that's kind of stock related. You're down around the twenty percent range. Some more. Some maybe a little bit less. The fixed income range. You're down fifteen percent. Some more. Some less. I mean, it, year to date, it's a bloodbath. Yeah, yeah, it was. So I think a lot of people were happy to see the first half of 2022 come to an end. Yeah. Next, I had a tweet from Callie Cox. This was on June 30th. She said, yes, we're on track for the S&P 500's worst half of the year since 1970, down 21%. Oof. But in the S&P's history, first halves down 21% or more have always led to second half rebounds. So she said in 1932, the S&P 500 was down 45% in the first half. So if people think this year was bad, more than double it to be down 45% in six months. Yeah, that, that's the definition of a depression. Yeah. Um, so in the second half, though, the markets rebounded 56% in the last six months of the year. In 1962, S&P 500 down 23% in the first half, up 15% in the second half. 1970, down 21% in the first half, and up 27% in the second half. So, you know, people might question why I think this is a piece of positive news, but Again, I, I sound like a broken record when I say this. I think a lot or most of the damage has already been done. And just using history as our guide, I think that the probabilities are with us that the second half is going to be stronger than the first half, although nothing's guaranteed. Anything can happen. We can continue to slide. But I think as the inflation comes down and as the Fed continues to raise interest rates and consumer prices comes in a little bit, I think this sets up for a typical midterm election year where we're weak in the first half of the year, markets stabilize late summer, early fall, and then we get a, a run up into Q4. And after the midterm elections, through uh, about a couple months before the next presidential election, tend to be one of the strongest periods in the election cycle. So um, we've been talking about, you know, typical midterm years and how that plays out. And right now it's playing out like a typical midterm year. Um, but I do think, you know, once we get past this, get this recession over with, I think that markets are going to return to normal and we'll start to see some pretty good returns going forward. Well said. I would add for flavor for the viewers and listeners, 
the market will bottom and start to rally well before the broader economy is appearing to get better. Mm -hmm. And so the, the warning, and this is a very important point for our viewers and listeners, let's say the market bottoms before the midterms, okay, and starts to rally. Main Street America, it might not feel that things are getting better until the first half of next year. That's not abnormal. Mm -mm. And I want to throw that out there. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think looking back at history again, you know, markets kind of sniff out when the worst is over. And before you see it in the in the mainstream mainstream media and in the, the paper headlines, magazine headlines, the market's going to sniff that out and recover before news gets any better. Absolutely. It reminds me of uh, of 09. In 2009, the market bottomed in March, but it didn't feel like things were getting better until October, November that year. Yeah. Just to throw it out there. Yep. Uh, last thing I had was a tweet by Money Visuals that is run by our friend Ashby Daniels. And he said, clients don't hate bear markets because their portfolio has dropped in value, but because they don't know how long it will take to recover. It's why you should discuss risk in terms of years of income and not in percentage asset allocation or risk scores. Hmm. And I thought this went along really well with um, the first piece of research that I went over because stocks and bonds are both getting whacked. That's right. right? So how do you and, diversify? And, and bonds are quote unquote safer than bonds. And a lot of them are still down 15 to 20 percent. That's right. So, you know, I think the conversation that we've been having is, you know, if you don't need this money in, in one to three years, let's just let this process play out and let it recover. And I think we're going to get back to a normal environment. But I think the thing that scares people is they don't know how long this is going to last. Yeah. And when you're in it, it always is going to appear it's going to take a lot longer to normalize than it actually is. Two great examples. You go back to the sell off in February, March of 2020. There was no way people thought the market was going to rally the way it did the rest of the year. Right. Okay. Example A. We were different, though. Don't be a spike football. <laughs> Another analogy is TSA. Miss that out of you. I have to <laughs> once in a while. Another analogy I have is, you know, travel. And so when COVID hit, all the experts, quote unquote, were saying airline uh, passenger volumes are not going to recover for at least six to seven years just after 9-11. Okay. Same analogy. And it took two years, and we've now surpassed pre-COVID passenger air travel levels. So it's like when you're in these environments, it feels like it's going to take three, four years for this market to recover. It could. Could shock you. Yeah. Yeah, This exactly. market has the ability to move and move very quickly. Mm -hmm. And I think people are thinking this is going to be more drawn out just because of the quick violent corrections in bear markets that we had recently, like you said, February, March of 2020. And then uh, end of 2018, that was pretty quick. It was just mm -hmm. like a month or a month and a half. Yep. It was pretty severe and it came back very quickly. And this one's taking a little longer. That's so I right. think people are getting antsy that, hey, this is going to be more like an 07, 08, where it's going to be two and two and a half years before the market starts to recover. That's right. And what's the what's the difference right now? You don't have the whole monetary financial system at risk of imploding. And so, you know, when I have people sit there and say to me, this feels like, you know, 07 through 09, and though the returns in certain asset classes are similar, the underlying reasons for the sell-off are completely different. And they're, that would be trying to compare apples to oranges. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. So I think we just need a period of, of calmness in and the markets, will. right? And it will, it'll happen. I'm not saying how quick it'll happen, mm -hmm. but things always go through these types of cycles. Yeah, they right? do. They do. Turn it over to you. 
I got some good stuff. Haven't heard that in a while. I got some good stuff. Okay. So the first thing is we are charting new territory. Jenna's going to put up on our, um, on our, for YouTube viewers, this chart right now. And for our listeners, they can get it off of our show notes. Uh, remind our listeners where they can get this. Yeah, on Twitter at Jessup Wealth or Jessup Wealth Management on Facebook or LinkedIn. So this is a tweet from um, the author of the Lead Lag Report, Michael. It shows the 20 largest S&P 500 drawdowns going back to 1961, Mark. On only three occasions did treasuries... Um, during those stock market drawdowns, lose money. What happened this year, though, has no precedent. And he said risk off became risk on and correlation and behavior. And when you look at this chart, it'll show you like the drawdowns of, say, during the great financial crisis of, you know, 07. It'll show you the dot-com bubble sell-off. And it shows you how far the S&P sold off. And then in purple, on the positive side, it shows you what 20-year Treasury bonds did in that same time period. And in most of these instances, they have done what they're designed to do from a diversification standpoint. Stocks are really weak. People go into the safe haven of long-dated U.S. Treasuries. And what do you see different about this chart? They're both falling right along inside each other. You virtually have what is deemed to be the go-to safe haven in the market sell-off down virtually the same as much as stocks. Yeah. And it's interesting because if you look at this, you know, in two, from 2007 to 2012, stocks were off more than, you know, 55%. And in that same time period, 20-year treasury bonds were up over 50%. See what I'm saying? So okay. there, there really, there is not a, a historical analog. There's not. And um, um, a real quick stat, and if Jenna has time to put it up on the uh, YouTube, this chart right now, it shows government bond returns going back to about 1900. The last year was the worst year for returns for the world government bond index going back to the Civil War. Wow. I did not misspeak. 1865. Okay. That's a long time. Now, to prove this correlation issue, my next item, and this is where it's really going to hit home, right? This is just a sucker punch right to the face. Mm -hmm. Okay. It shows going back to 1977, a chart by Compound Advisors, and it shows years where the stock market struggled, what the Bloomberg bond aggregate index did. And then the blended return of your prototypical 60-40 portfolio. I want to highlight 2008. In 2008, the stock market, the S&P, was down 37%. That year, the aggregate bond index was up 5.2. So your blended return for your typical 60-40 portfolio, you were down 20%. Mm -hmm. And that was a horrible year. Yeah, okay. brutal year, but still 17% better than if you were 100% stock. Bingo. So what worked that year? Diversification worked properly that year, right? So let's fast forward to this year, the beginning. So when this was run, this was run um, through the end of June, Mark. Okay. S&P down 20% for the year. Aggregate bond index at that time down 10.4%. So tell the viewers and listeners... What the 60-40 is down. 
down over 16%. So if you're listening to this or watching this and this feels like 2008, from a return perspective, you're spot on. From what's going on in this world and you look at what's really affecting these markets, completely different scenario from 07 to 09. Right. That's why I'm in the camp that the next couple of years, you're most likely gonna have a friendly investment environment. This has taken a lot of risk out of the market, at least for the next two years. I'm not saying it's gonna be peachy keen, it's gonna be up a little bit every month, it's gonna be nice and easy. The bottoming process still has to finish out and it's gonna suck. But I'm just saying, when you look at these types of numbers, it's no reason why people are on edge. Right, exactly. And I think, so let me ask you this. So, you know, the Bloomberg U.S. aggregate bond index is down almost 10.5% this year. You know what would really shock people? Go. If it finished in the green for the year. Oh! All right. So the other thing we have to remember, too, is this is only the first six months of the year. And just because we only have six months left doesn't mean damage can be undone in that short a period of time. So it wouldn't shock me if bonds finished up for the year there's so much negative sentiment on bonds and bonds are never going to work again <laughs> bonds should be tossed out of the, the 60 40 por portfolio is dead but the minute people start talking about the 60 40 portfolio being dead is that's proof with it itself it's not six months is enough time for these numbers to climb back absolutely i'm not saying they're going to but I, you just have to have an open mind with that I would say just as much of the risk to the downside the past six months that the market has had, people need to get imaginative and understand that this market could move quickly on mm -hmm. any sort of positive news. Yeah. Okay. So the next one I have, I think you'll find interesting, Mark. This is a tweet by Julian, who's the CEO of Accelerate FT. His tweet, which was on July 2nd, said this. Small cap stocks trade at 11.2 times forward earnings in line with low valuations hit during the bear market bottoms of 08 and 2020. Small cap valuations have dropped more than 55% over the past uh, two years. And what it does is it references this chart that goes back to the beginning of 06 and it just shows the um, the price to earnings ratio on a forward looking basis. Why am I highlighting this? I know that uh, in the news and even on our podcast, we tend to kind of reference the S&P as kind of the poster child um, to kind of reference and benchmark and talk about stocks. I think it's important that once in a while we bring up some other things like the S&P 600 small cap index which has high correlation to the Russell 2000, which you tend to talk about in the pricing at the beginning of the podcast, I think it's nice to highlight that it's not just large caps that have really struggled. I mean, you have small size companies that are at really depressed and at decade low valuations. Yeah, and I think the thing to, to remember here too, is we kind of talked about this during, during COVID is that Coming out of uh, recessionary periods, and I'm not saying we're in one yet, but if it does happen to be that we're in one now or we're close to one, small caps, by definition, are more volatile than mid-cap or large caps. Absolutely. Less liquid, et cetera. And so, you know, these more, quote-unquote, riskier areas of the market 
tend to lead the market in both directions, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about um, the end or the middle of uh, 2021, small caps kind of stalled and petered out before the general market did, and they kind of led the market lower. Go back to uh, February, March of 2020, small caps kind of led that rally higher. So coming out of recessionary periods, looking back at the past, small caps tend to turn around before the large cap indices do. So I think that's one of the tells, not the only thing, but to see signs of a improving market and a market that is strengthening and uh, has already priced in all the bad news, once small caps start to turn around and outperform on a relative basis for a couple of months, I think that's a pretty strong sign that a lot of the damage has already uh, been behind us. Well said, well said. And the only thing I could add to that is, I would expect at these types of valuations for the next couple of years, mergers and acquisitions to pick up in the small cap space. I think you're gonna see a lot of either other smalls or mid and large size companies say, hmm, you know, that, that company would be complementary to our business, whether it's a competitor, supplier, customer, I think you're going to see, you know, with these types of valuations and small size, you're going to see a lot more acquisitions in that space. Yeah. And speaking of that, I'm going to make a prediction, which I don't do too often, but Ooh. this is just for fun. Ooh. I think Apple is going to buy Peloton eventually. And I, like I came out and saw because we're big Peloton fans. Yeah. And uh, they're making um, Apple's making like special bands for or peloton's making special bands for like apple watches or something like that i saw the other day so uh, yeah, I like just that. have a feeling this is like the beginning of that. setting up the acquisition right buying them on the cheap with all that cash apple's got on the balance they sheet. probably make it in a day so. right so just I one would, one prediction we'll all see right, if i'm I think right good prediction see if i'm right see if i'm wrong okay so um, all right. Well, I'm going to head out of here. I'm going to bring in Taylor for the financial planning topic of the week. And I will be back with everybody next week on episode number 158. All right. Thank you, Mark. So for our viewers and listeners that are newer to the podcast, uh, Taylor Ledbetter is a wealth advisor uh, with our firm, Jessup Wealth Management. She is in charge of all the financial planning uh, work that's kind of done behind the scenes uh, for our clients. She uh, has a very important test coming up uh, that she has been working her tail off on for quite some time. Before you begin, Taylor, you want to uh, tell the listeners and viewers uh, what's ahead for you over the next week or so. Mm -hmm. Yep. So I've been studying for the Certified Financial Planning Exam, uh, CFP exam. It's about a six-hour test. Takes a few months to study for. So I've been here at the office seven days a week ever since January. Yeah, <laughs> probably yeah, more than studying. a few months. Yeah. So I take that in about a week and a half. You're going to do great. Thanks. You're going to do great. You're very, you're very smart. So you've only been working hard on it. So what do you have for the viewers and listeners this week? Mm -hmm. um, so today I'm going to be talking about just the differences between a traditional IRA and a Roth IRA. Okay. Um, because I actually get this question very frequently in meetings and then in financial plan presentations when yeah. I do those. Um, I would say it's probably the most commonly asked question. <laughs> All right, let's do this. This is going to be fun. Um, so first, a traditional IRA contributions obviously go in as pre-tax money. Mm -hmm. um, and then when you go to withdraw those in retirement, you pay taxes on those. And then with the Roth IRA, contributions go into that with 
after-tax money and grow completely tax-free. And then when you withdraw that in retirement, you don't owe any taxes. Mm -hmm. um, that's, I think, the main difference. That's sure. the biggest factor. Um, typically, if you have a traditional IRA, it's more advantageous if you're expected to be in a lower tax bracket in retirement. Because if you're not paying taxes on that now and you expect to be in a lower bracket later on, you'll just pay less taxes. Sure. And then kind of the opposite for the Roth. If you expect to be in a higher tax bracket in retirement, um, it's better to pay those taxes now when you're in a lower bracket. Yep. Makes sense. Um, so that's, I think, like I said, the main difference between the two. Um, some similarities would include they both have contribution limits. Mm -hmm. So for either IRA, you can contribute $6,000 a year. Or if you're over 50, you can contribute an extra thousand for a total of $7,000. Um, typically, there is a 10% penalty if you withdraw money from either of these accounts before age 59 and a half. Now, there are a few exceptions. Um, a couple examples, if you're buying a home for the first time, you can withdraw money before 59 and a half up to $10,000 and okay. avoid that 10% penalty. You'll still pay tax on it, but you just avoid the penalty. Correct. Yeah. From the traditional IRA, at least, Correct. you would pay taxes. Um, another example is if you're withdrawing money for qualified education expenses, um, you don't pay a penalty on that either. Okay. Um, but those are really the only similarities between the two. Yeah. Uh, there's actually quite a bit of differences. Um, so as I just mentioned earlier, traditional IRAs are taxable, Roths are not. Um, traditional IRA contributions receive a tax deduction when you go to file for your tax return. Since you're not paying taxes now, that's subtracted from your taxable income. Yep. Um, traditional IRAs have what's called a required minimum distribution beginning at age 72. Mm -hmm because the IRS wants their tax money. They want to start getting that money. <laughs> mm -hmm. So they require you to take out a certain amount every single year, starting at age 72 um, for the rest of your life expectancy. And if you um, have beneficiaries on your traditional IRA, they also have RMD requirements upon your passing also. Correct. Um, typically, if you're a non-spouse, you have to deplete the whole account within 10 years over time. Um, but with Roth IRAs, since taxes have already been paid on that, your beneficiaries don't have to take out any money. They're not forced to. Yeah. Um, I've mentioned this before. With a Roth IRA, you can do a Roth conversion. Mm -hmm. It's just converting traditional IRA money to Roth IRA, paying those taxes now and letting that grow tax-free in retirement. Kind of a one-time hit, and then that money's in the Roth for the rest of its life. Mm -hmm. yeah. Correct. Um, you used to kind of be able to do the same thing with the traditional IRA. It was called a recharacterization. Um, that was when you would move money from the Roth to the traditional. So it worked a little bit differently, but um, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 banned those recharacterizations. So you can't do those anymore. Um, another difference is that you can withdraw your Roth IRA contributions completely tax-free. That's a big point. Because mm -hmm. you've already paid taxes on those, uh, whereas a traditional IRA, you can't withdraw the contributions tax-free because you haven't paid taxes on those. That's right. They can't get you for double taxation on that. Right. 
Um, so again, you can withdraw the contributions to avoid the penalty, not the earnings. Not um, the earnings. Anytime before you're 59 and a half. Correct. Um, another big difference between the two is that Roth IRA contributions need to remain in the Roth IRA for at least five years from your first contribution to avoid that 10% penalty. Correct. Yep. So there's a five-year holding period. Um, the next difference is that there's actually an income phase-out range for traditional IRA contribution deductions mm -hmm. um, because, as I said earlier, you can deduct what you contribute to the traditional IRA. But there are phase-out ranges, um, specifically if you're active in a qualified plan, so a 401k yep. or a 403b. Um, so, for example, if you participate in your 401k at work, and you are married filing joint on your return, if you make combined $129,000 or more, then you can't deduct any IRA contributions on your tax return. You can still make the contribution, you just don't Correct. get the tax benefit. Correct. Yes. So that phase out range starts at $109,000 and then ends at $129,000. So completely after $129,000, there's no deductibility. Correct. Of it. And again, those numbers are for the married filing joint. Correct. And then the last major difference is that Roth IRA contributions are phased out as well um, on a certain income level. So if you are single and your modified adjusted gross income is between 129000 and 144000 that's the phase out range to where you can't make maybe as high of contributions to the Roth. Um, so that phase out range ends at 144 if you're single and anything above that, you can't contribute to a Roth IRA at all. Correct. Mm -hmm. Correct. Um, so those were the main differences. There's a lot of them when you start there looking is. into I mean, it. Yeah, there's a lot of differences between the two. You know, I think more and more where I'm seeing people have both of these buckets of money is inside their 401k plans. Mm -hmm. And what I'm seeing more and more of, Taylor, is, you know, you get a 401k statement and let's say it shows a participant has, you know, half a million dollars. Well, it might be 350 or 400 of it is pre-tax money. And maybe they started when the plan added in an after-tax saving you know, mm -hmm. bucket like a Roth bucket, mm -hmm. you know, they're going to have some of that after tax money in that plan as well. And so I think this could be another good reminder for listeners that, you know, if you're participating through an employer sponsored plan, look to see if they have an option mm -hmm. to make those after tax Roth contributions, because you might not be eligible to do a personal Roth IRA. Right. But guess what? You might be able to do it through your plan. Mm -hmm. And I think having both you know, tax buckets of money is a good thing. Yeah. I mean, for someone like you who does the financial planning portion and you're advising clients on the most, say, tax efficient way to do withdrawals, mm -hmm. the more tools that are at your disposal on behalf of that mm -hmm. client is going to get them a, a more successful mm -hmm. outcome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think when I, when I talk about the Roth IRA or a Roth 401k, just those after-tax accounts, a lot of times people can be like, oh, well, that sounds like the better option, so let's just go ahead and do that. But even though it sounds better, it's not always the case. Uh, well well said. Kind of well like said. I referenced earlier, if you expect to be in a lower tax bracket in retirement, maybe a Roth right now isn't you know a good option for you. Well put. 
well put. And I think because it happens that, oh, well, everyone says the Roth is better. And the other issue I see sometimes is someone, let's say they have a 10% contribution rate. And, you know, they, they hear this podcast and they go, I'm going to start putting money into the Roth. So they switch their contribution from 10% pre-tax to 10% after-tax Roth contribution through the retirement plan. Mm -hmm. Your paycheck is going to drop mm -hmm. by 4 to 5% because that money going into the plan has to be taxed first. Mm -hmm. And so what I see as a more successful transition for a lot of people is you make changes like every six months over three years. So if you're at that 10% contribution rate, maybe you drop that pre-tax to 8%, start increasing that Roth by two. You're still at a 10% mm -hmm. contribution rate overall. Six months later, do another baby step. I think if they do it in baby steps, they're really not going to notice it on their paycheck. Yeah, and that's what I tell clients to you all the time is if you do everything slowly, maybe make changes like you said, once a year or every few months, you're not going to notice that. Yep. And as do much. it systematically. Mm -hmm. Right. Make sure you're consistent with it. Absolutely. Anything else you'd like to discuss this week? Nope. Just wanted to go over those main differences. Go ahead, please. Oh, I, I did. Them. Okay. Making sure you <laughs> didn't have anything else. I want to make sure you didn't have anything else. I don't want to cut you off. So, um, as always, Taylor, thank you so much for spending time with us on the podcast. You're amazing. So um, viewers and listeners, we're going to sign off uh, from the Independent Advisors podcast. This was episode uh, 157. Uh, Mark uh, will be back next week with episode 158, and we will talk to you then. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.